the most beautiful and pure way of looking at what these technologies can bring you is encapsulated in the term self-sovereign identity. Which means I now have cryptographic mechanisms, that's just technology, but I use them now to basically establish my own identity through my own network and we share. So I have a connection to you and you verify certain credentials. You say, yes, Harry knows a lot about blockchain and me, Raj, I'm the one that confirms that. And based on that, in kind of a social manner, but fully self-sovereign, I do not take this from a government. I do not take this from a company. This is me, self-sovereign. Me, the owner of myself, of my data, of my identity. And that's a beautiful dream to dream. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Frontier Talk the world's first podcast on decentralized identity. I'm Raj Hegde, and in this podcast, we explore the intersection between identity, technology, and people. Joining me today is a technology thought leader who has broken new ground in building practical software solutions for finance and mobility. What's special about him is that he is a man who truly lives on the frontier. As you, as you listen to his journey, you'll notice his tenacity to venture into uncharted territory even before he has the how figured out. This innate curiosity to study how technology has the power um, to change lives led him to do a PhD in distributed AI at a time when no one really knew about artificial intelligence. Here to share his take on how companies can leverage decentralized identity to build more personalized products, Dr. Harry Behrens, the head of blockchain factory at Daimler Mobility. Oh, thank you, Raj. That was a very... Very strong welcome. I appreciate being here, and I'm really looking forward to discuss. Uh, yes, how uh, what is happening, how things are moving around in this very exciting field of technology, and how now identities become a core part of how business and technology is being conducted in the next few years. Likewise, Ari, it's great to have you on board. I look forward to learning a lot over this conversation today. Um, well, Harry, let's start off by talking about your journey so far. Um, how did this path ultimately lead you to the world of blockchain, so to say? Well, I've always liked technology, especially software, because uh, software is how people bring their thoughts into real life and real business. That's what the beauty of software is. So I've always, as soon as software became something that is accessible, I was into it. So I studied computer science. I've always focused on where communication meets computation. So basically, a computer does something in a box, but it gets really interesting when now there's computers or systems or devices, and they start talking to each other. And uh, so all through basically my career, I focused on what used to be called distributed computing. Then it became networking. Then it became internetworking. Then it got a name, and that's the internet. And now it's becoming much more powerful. And something is emerging that is fully disruptive. Well, it's called blockchain, whether in the end it will be the internet of money, the internet of value, or simply the net or the metaverse, as some, of, some people call it slightly poetically, is not sure. But either way, I got hooked on it, um, preliminary hooked, very interested once Bitcoin came out, but I didn't really yet have an angle into it. I'm not an investor type of person. 
So I admire mm-hmm. the beautiful revolutionary concept, but you couldn't touch it. You couldn't program it. But then out came Ethereum, and all of a sudden, the world is our oyster. As a software engineer, as a digital native, um, all of a sudden, you had this world computer of transaction processing available, brought to us by this brilliant Russian whiz kid. And that's the moment I got hooked. Right. Sounds fascinating. Um, for our audience, could you perhaps take a step back uh, for a moment and summarize what the blockchain factory is and the stuff you're working on? Yes. So the blockchain factory is the blockchain team within Daimler Mobility. Um, Daimler Mobility is was formerly called Daimler Financial Services. So we are the service arm of the Daimler Group. So we have one holding. We have two manufacturing companies, one producing passenger cars and vans, the other one producing buses and trucks. And then we have the service company. So we focus on basically taking products like a truck, like a Mercedes, and building services around them, the most obvious one being financing and leasing. But then you've got fleet, carpool management. And now as the world is changing, especially in the urban space, towards mobility, which is why the company renamed itself from Daimler Financial Services to Daimler Mobility a year and a half ago. And I'm heading the blockchain right. factory there, which I founded uh, uh, as of the 1st of September, 2018. Right. So let us perhaps double click um, on your on your time currently at the blockchain factory, so to say. On this journey, were there any um, seminal moments that made you sit up and say, wait, hold on a second, we might be onto something big here. Yes, the, actually, the beauty of it is the se- this seminal moment came mm-hmm. before the actual founding of the Black Blockchain Factory. And it was ultimately, if you wish, the reason that the board of management was convinced. Because we had looked at what is blockchain, what is decentralized. And then we had recognized, if you look at the life cycle of a car, it and you think about accounting now, you stop thinking about accounting and booking and transactions from the perspectives like you always do, which is company-based. So you have your ledger in your company, but all of a sudden you realize in the automotive world, in the mobility world, in the insurance around vehicles, there is no exception to the following statement. Every single Mm -hmm. contract management system insurance, rental, financing, purchase, leasing, repair, will always have the vehicle identity, the vehicle identification number, the VIN, as the first or the second key in that contract. And the moment you realize that, you hit jackpot. Because first of all, wow, I got a one-to-one unique identifier. Not only that, I know everybody in the whole world has got the very same identifier in each and every single one of their contract data. So I don't need to take care of that. And now I understand that blockchain is a distributed ledger. So how about we think about it the following way? Yes, we have a ledger, but it's a ledger built around the car. The car keeps its ledger around. And as it travels through time and space, it passes companies and it rests a little bit on the on the general ledger of this company and then it leaves that company as it's being sold and it parks itself in the general ledger of yet another company it never loses its identity and internally also it never loses its own life cycle of transactions and the moment that was clear 
basically the mobility blockchain platform was born. At that point in time, it was still called SmartVIN, which, by the way, is also a good name, I believe, because VIN as in vehicle identification number. And that's actually also where you see you cannot separate something like blockchain, which very much focus on transactions from identities, mm -hmm. especially if you're in the corporate sector, where we do need to know our counterparties. And when we do booking, accounting, paying, we always need to be aware who is what and who did what with whom. Right. Sounds interesting. Um, could you perhaps double click on this concept of vehicle identity? I think it is a concept that is definitely interesting. Um, as a mobility veteran, you have closely seen the evolution of a vehicle, so to say, from being this purely mechanical entity to the more computational platform that it is today. And there is talk going on, going on around rather uh, about a connected economy where vehicles are expected to not only interact with each other, but also with infrastructure around them. So what's the role of identity in making all of this possible? Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on vehicle identity and perhaps the standards built to secure such identities. Well, it's actually very, very simple. Because each, uh, each vehicle is a registered subject. It gets actually registered. You, on, you, when you, obviously, you have, a, you have a number plate on your car. There's a title on your car, which is the ownership of that document. And so it's not only that you have the physical object, but it's actually a registered object in many governmental or half-governmental authorities. Your insurance needs to know about it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the identity of this vehicle and that it is totally immutable and that it is totally unique has always been clear that it needs to be there. So this VIN was not invented in the time in the times of blockchain. It's it's mm -hmm. 20, 30, 40 years old. And the beauty of it, as I said, it's universal. And the reason it was built is because exactly you need to be able to find that vehicle wherever it may be and whoever may own it. But now as you move towards digital services, and which basically means fully automated services because it means software. And as you realize that software is eating the world, and if any of you who are listening do not know what that means, do go to the Google and find the article by Andreessen Horowitz, Why Software is Eating the World. It's beautiful, it's crisp, it's short, and it tells you everything about the internet and platform economics from the point of view of somebody who saw it coming before it came. And the point, important point is software scales unlimited. But software scales unlimited because it automates completely. If you want to, however, to automate something completely, you must not allow media breaks. That's a simple one. But you must also not allow the possibility of dispute. Because in case you have disputes or doubt, then that would stop the flow. Because then you would have to say, no, I didn't drive five kilometers. Yes, you drove five kilometers. And if there's any doubt about this or that machine sent me five whatever units uh, in this transaction and the recipient says no i only received four the moment you got that you mm -hmm. cannot fully automate because you will have to bring in four i principles you bring in humans and humans slow down software by a factor of million so if you truly right. want to scale and you truly want to automate you must make it possible for the chain of automation to be unbroken and if you go that route, and you also think about that every transaction, don't forget we're in the business of doing business, each and every one of us, needs to be booked. So you want to basically book the liabilities and book the revenue. And at that level, at least, you will understand this must be audit proof 
fully legit, legitimate, fully verified, and with all credentials there, because otherwise, again, you want to automatically settle them. Otherwise, there's no way I can automatically settle a liability if there's any doubt how it was created and who was involved. Long story short, for this, you need the identities of all parties involved. You need a secure way of having them state facts, meaning you need a secure way for them to sign on whatever data they send you or whatever statement they send you or on a contract that they have signed on this contract. And once you got that and you make it unbroken, then you truly achieve seamless automation. And for that you have, and the life is really simple in this, in the whole automotive and mobility sector, you need only three identities. And that's the identity triangle around which everything we do with the mobility blockchain platform revolves. There's no exception. Company, customer, car. And you can extend the car concept to any smart device, charging stations, whatever. It just rhymes nicer. CCC, company, customer, car. Any transaction at all that you can possibly think about will involve the identity of the car with the VIN, the identity of you as a person. Obviously, when you sign something, we need your identity. And the identity of the company, whoever's offering the service, possibly paying another company. And once you got that down, and then all of a sudden you see, wow, the world has gifted us with convergence. We didn't only have IoT already, smart devices. We got blockchain. And hello, welcome DID, decentralized identifiers. Life is complete. We can start building everything we've been dreaming about for the last few years. Right. I would highly recommend uh, the article by uh, Mark Andreessen uh, titled Software is Eating the World. I think it's a fascinating read. And just like the blockchain factory is leveraging software to, say, transform the mobility industry, we at Coping a Call with the Frontier Talk podcast are leveraging the power of media to, in a sense, give decentralized identity a human voice. Um, and I think that's a great segue to dive into the identity sphere. Um, digital identity has evolved from being, say, heavily centralized to now being more user to, to now being more user centric. However, while such user centric identities are interoperable, the ownership of such identities still remain with large entities with questionable motives, the ones who cannot be named. Um, how would you perhaps describe decentralized identity and? Where does it fit in the schema of identity as we know it today? Well, let me start with the maybe most beautiful vision of decentralized identity to which I have to add immediately, which is not usable in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. The most beautiful right. and pure way of looking at what these technologies can bring you is encapsulated in the term self-sovereign identity, which means I now have cryptographic mechanism, that's just technology, but I use them now to basically establish my own identity through my own network and we share. So I have a connection to you and you verify certain credentials. You say, yes, Harry knows a lot about blockchain and me, Raj, I'm the one that confirms that. And based on that, in kind of a social manner, but fully self-sovereign, I do not take this from a government. I do not take this from a company. This is me, self-sovereign me, the owner of myself, of my data, of my identity. And that's a beautiful dream to dream. And on the technical level and on the kind of crypto anarchistical level, and I mean this in a positive, mm -hmm. not in a derogatory 
manner, this is being pursued. No doubt about this. And technically speaking, however, they're just called more neutrally decentralized identifiers. It's a Web3, mm-hmm. a Web, uh, World Wide Web Consortium standard in the forming, and it basically describes the necessary protocols for this. Now, having said this beautiful song about the self-sovereign identities, let us not forget one thing. You, Raj, I'm, I think you're a citizen of the UK. So the, when you go and sign a contract, Whatever you think you might have as your personal identity, whatever your mother and your father and your friends have given you as their form of identity, that is not going to interest anybody when it comes to the contract signing. You show me your government-approved identity, and with that, that is the one we confirm. That is the one we check that the signature matches on that identity document, and that's the one you're going to be signing your contract with. Otherwise, no contract. So the point I'm trying to make is human identity in the legal sense of the word when it goes onto a contract and when it enters business is, and there's simply no way around this, is the identity that your respective government has given you. In Germany, it's in my personal ID document and possibly in my passport, ultimately tied to my birth certificate as the master file. And it will always come from that. So you now have decentralized technology, which is beautiful, but you still need to, if you want to use it in the corporate sense and have it applicable to contracts, business transactions, and accounting records, and cash transactions, where everything is governed by Know Your Customer, which is a government prescribed regulation, you need to map it to the fact that you have a root authority of identity, which will always, and to no exception, be your government. It, and that is where the interesting hybrid forms of decentralized identity come. The purist will say, oh, that is betrayal of a beautiful concept, of a beautiful technology. But the pragmatist will have to go down that route because otherwise this beautiful technology say, stays either not utilized or only in the hands of a few idealists. Right. So you just mentioned that um, decentralized identity in a more corporate setting slightly differentiates from the core concept of self-sovereign identity. So what is the business value for an enterprise, say, of this hybrid decentralized identity model? Is there anything in it for enterprise? I'm not sure how many of your audience will be from big corporations, probably a big percentage. And then I don't know how many of them will have had direct exposure to what is happening in each and every single one of their companies, which is the very famous or notorious master data projects. So every few years, big corporations, especially multinationals, run this master data cleanup projects. They used to cost Mm -hmm. single digit millions. Then they cost double digit millions and they're approaching triple digit millions. They usually now by now take one to three years And they almost always fail in the sense that one year after they're finished, everything is helter-skelter again. So what's the master data problem? Well, me, Harry Behrens, I used to lease a car in China with a company called MBAFC, which is a subsidiary of Daimler. Then I also used to be a customer of Car2Go, which happens to be a subsidiary of that very same MBAFC. Then I'm driving a Mercedes now in Germany, where I have a Mercedes Me account which is here in Germany. 
Then I actually go and rent a car from MB Rent, which is Mercedes-Benz Rent, which is fully owned subsidiary of the very same conglomerate. That is four different records, four different records master data. Not only do I have to go through the pain of registering myself each and every single time, providing my passport, my KYC, my this and my that. No, the, com the whole company as a total doesn't know that this is the same Harry. This looks like four customers. And every IT in the big corporations know this, and there's simply no way around it with existing technology. You can run incredibly smart search algorithms that cost a lot of money and a lot of time. They have, depending on how good you are, you might get close to 80, 90% ratio. You have a lot of false positives, you have a lot of false negatives, and those are very expensive to finalize. And anyway, it immediately diverges again because you have no way of keeping it under control. And now, if you think about that there is identity, and most people don't get that. Most people make the mistake an account is like an identity. But note that I can have many accounts. You can always verify that account is Harry. Yes, but identity is by the definition of the term one to one. So not only can you prove that this account is Harry Behrens, no, it must be the only account that Harry Behrens has. Just like you have only one government ID. Think of it as the voting problem. You wouldn't be able to hold public votes if you didn't have true identity one-to-one, -one, because otherwise I could use the one identity on that voting booth and go right next door to the other voting booth and vote again. So you need identity in this strict form of the word. The technology of decentralized identities gives you that capability. And then, but if you then develop the concept of a trust provider that handles this KYC master data once, the customer only entrusts her data to this trust provider who keeps it in a mutually secure way between the wallet of the user and the back end of, the, of that trust provider. And then if anybody asks me for validation, then I will be confirming. So a little bit of the self-sovereignty stays and that trust provider will then sign with their credentials as being a regulated, certified, recognized trust provider, will confirm, yes, me, trusted and appreciated and registered, EIDAS conform trust provider, herewith confirm with my digital signature, which again has been verified by a trust provider that verifies companies' identities, I verify that indeed Harry Behrens is Harry Behrens, he is over 18, and he has a valid driving license, which has been visually inspected in the last six months. Once you got that, then you use that as the golden record, and you put that in all of these distributed companies' records. But it's a one thing, just like your personal ID is one thing. And that just solves the pain of all of this master data. And if you go into any sales organization right. in a company, they all want this 360-degree view on the customers. You know, every person will tell you that user centric view. You cannot achieve that if you haven't unified identities, because otherwise you're looking at four shadows of the same person. Right. Identity is one to one. I think that's a great statement. And that leads me on to my next point, which is that identity traditionally has been a very innately physical concept. Um, today, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, today I can walk into a store and simply authenticate myself by, say, showing my passport or ID, such as the driving license. 
However, it's not so simple when it comes to, say, authenticating yourself online. Mm. Um, can we anchor digital mechanisms to physical identity in order to perhaps solve some of the challenges uh, pertaining to the interoperability uh, of decentralized identity, so to say, and scalability too. You always yeah. have one thing, and beware of the technical fallacy. So you have perfect software. So in a way, blockchain in its ideal way is a kind of perfect software. But just because something is on the software does not mean it's true. Because I could state that the moon is a green cheese and commit that mm -hmm. to the blockchain, and that in no way makes it a fact that the moon is a green cheese. It just makes it a fact that Harry is talking nonsense and has access to a blockchain. So what I'm trying to say with this, don't fall into the technical fallacy of thinking you can solve the problem if you've got perfect software. Always think of the what used to be called the cyber-physical link. So in a good and well-educated cryptographer will always tell you, in order to assign an identity to something, there must always be what is called a ceremony. And the ceremony is a very regulated ceremony in which certified, specially entrusted people or organizations make the match between the physical object, the car, or you as a person or the company identifier. They have been certified, registered, they are, they are vetted, and they are special people. And they then make a ceremony where they take a public key, they take a face, they take a government ID, they say, me, certified trust provider, in this ceremony, in this notary of identities, herewith certify that I have seen the face and the body of Raj Hegde. I have seen the personal ID document with number datatam of Raj Hegde. I have seen the public key that he plans to use for his digital identity. I confirm all of this with the current timestamp under oath and in my qualification as, and now I put a timestamp on it and notarize it on a blockchain. Once you got that, you got your identity digitized, but you can never get around this physical physical to digital ceremony, because as you said, you're a physical being. So you're not going to be able to jump that gap without one ceremony, which is half physical and half digital. And because this is the most important kiss of birth in all of this for right. the digital, it must be highly ritualized and it must be under a very strict ceremony in order to fully do its purpose, which is because technically speaking, you have the capability to break the security in this context. So you need to ensure the trust in it by the ceremony and by the special people that you allow to do it. For instance, for contract, it's the notary. And if you don't have that, you will never achieve this. But once you do this and the ceremony is in place and smooth, then you can move forward. And after it has been done, we took your public key. Okay, we are free now, digitally speaking. The software engineer can come out and say, now let's do some stuff. Because now I got your right. public key. Now I have all the software. I assign a DID to it. Yes, rock and roll. We got you on there. My software works. I got you on. KYC through. Welcome to the platform. Right. I believe now is a great time to, to look at the applicability of decentralized identity in the mobility industry, for that matter. Um, the mobility industry, for one, is highly fragmented, as you might know. You have a large number of 
scooter operators, ride-hailing operators, car-sharing platforms, all competing in one shared urban space of sorts. Um, and with more players coming in, it eventually means more identity. So does decentralized identity... Can I hire you as a sales guy, as a business developer? You explained this better than I could. <laughs> You'd have to contact uh, yeah, my superiors at Coping a Coal, but uh, yeah. We, we can talk about that. But uh, but for now, um, yeah, so with more players, it eventually means more identities at play. So do decentralized identifiers have a role to play in the industry? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because especially, let's jump a few years ahead just to make the point really clear. It's not fully at that level yet, but it will be. Each vehicle should, when you rent it, when you find it, when you use it, and that can be a scooter or a car, or the bus door or whatever, you don't want to have a human interaction having to open the door for you or having to give you the car key and tell you the car is on parking lot P67 or blah, blah. You want to have this fully digital, right? So including the door opening or the engine on, whatnot, whatnot. So for that to happen, you need to be able to locate that device. You need to be able to somehow interact with it. First of all, legitimize yourself. Hey, I am Harry. That and that company has sold me a ticket which gives me access to you as a vehicle. You vehicle, would you be so kind as to verify and then be at my service? And then the vehicle go, hmm, okay, let's have a look here. All right, Harry, okay, who's vouching for you? Oh, that company is vouching for you. Do I know that company? Hmm, yes, I know that company. Does my owner know that company? Hmm, my owner knows that company. Okay, did my owner and that company have a deal that allows my company to deliver services to you? Mm, yes. All right, ping, the scooter switches on. For that to work, the identities of everybody involved here needs to be, need to be undoubtable and irrefutable. And they need to be in an unbroken chain of verification because otherwise you got all kinds of security attack vectors. So it must be unbroken. And this can only be done, I believe, on what is now called decentralized identifiers, where ultimately the keys for this technically in the pure way of the word, being at the edge, meaning the key and therefore the control over this identity, this is why they're centralized, decentralized is with the person. So in, the, in my wallet here, in case of the car, in what's called a hardware wallet, which doesn't have much to do with money, the wallet is like most males in Germany in their right pocket, right hand pocket, right uh, uh, pocket behind, they have their wallet, you take it out, you always have your identity document in it. You also have your credit cards. So the wallet is the container for your identity. That's what it means. You can also put cash into it, which is then tied to your identity. But a hardware wallet is mainly that piece of hardware, which has a secure enclave, so it keeps your keys safe. And then it allows you to assign a one-to-one -one unbreakable identity to a device and also to companies. And for the car, this is very important because, remember, you want to automate all of this. So then you get what we call billing records in the telecommunication industry or call detail records. So you basically get from the device, it sends you, I just drove X kilometers, GPS route, blah, blah, blah. I just, my state of charge was reduced by I don't know how many watt, whatever, whatever. But in order for it to send you that, they already can do that. But if you keep those in your record, you want those records to be immutable. The only way you can do that is if what you have, what's called a digital signature. Because the moment you put a digital signature under any type of data, the moment I change even one eye dot, one dot on the eye, 
and I verify that record, it tells me, no, no, that is not the original data. I cannot reconstruct the original data, but I can verify it's the original data or not. And only then, again, remember, for this to be fully automated, it needs to be irrefutable. You can send data even now, but then, all right, I'm the database admin. All right. Now, login SQL update. Thank you. That was now, I, I didn't drive 100 kilometers, I only drive 10. I love SQL. Right. So mm -hmm. in order for that not to be doable, you need this data the moment I do that, and then the moment somebody extracts the data, they run the cryptographical protocol. Okay, check the signature on the data. Drup. This is breaking. Something's fishy. That is not our record. So this is also why identity for devices are so important. And also another point about these decentralized identifiers, and that is what makes them so beautiful from the design perspective. They are what's called URIs. So in order not to get too detailed, which is this more or less the same thing as a URL, as in when you go to the browser, www.copyingacall.de, that's your URL, right? A DID is exactly like that. So it becomes addressable, which means that very same DID can now have its, its own URL by which it answers. So you address it and you look, okay, who are you? And then it states about itself. I got these features. I provide you with these functions. And if you, if you interact with me, I will always digitally sign. So you really, really know you're dealing with that identity. Very similar to HTTPS. So when you have that sweet little lock in your browser, you know you're dealing with Microsoft.com and not somebody who's impersonating Microsoft.com because there's a trust authority and cryptography in place that makes sure this is Microsoft.com. And all of a sudden, you have provided this very same level of security to each and every possible endpoint. So that's humans, that's companies, and most of all, that's the billions and tens of billions and hundreds of billions of devices out there as we move towards autonomous driving, smart cities, Internet of Things, factory automation, you name it. And each one of these in a not too long future will have digital identities because that way you know exactly what is what, who's who, and you don't have to check and waste a lot of time of doing verification, reconciliation, 4i principle, blah, blah, blah. That's the beauty of these technologies. Right. All of this sounds very fascinating, but I would like to shed the light on your statement in the very near future, so to say. So all of this talk about autonomous driving and interconnected vehicles sounds brilliant, but the mobility industry, at least for now, is solely focused on the, sing on the singular vehicle, so to say. And when it comes to the blockchain and decentralized, the, the, the decentralized identity industry, so to say, there has been a lot of criticism along the lines of too much sizzle but not too much stake. So is there a platform out there that is currently in the works or is there a platform out there that is live? Well, is there something we need to know? There is. Now it comes the time where I do have to mention what we do. And I apologize for the, for the pitch, but it's just true. So we have at Dino Mobility, we did develop what we call the Mobility Blockchain Platform. And if you Google that on the Mobility Blockchain Platform, you will see there's a number of very renowned ventures that build it together with us. And this is a really production ready software that is addressing a, def a very fragmented urban mobility ecosystem where the main product is not that scooter, 
or that bus or that car, the product that you consume and that you want as a consumer is single entry, so single channel. I move through the city in a way that suits me best. I walk, then obviously I don't even need an app. I walk, I, t- I take or rent a bike, I, I hop on a scooter, I identify myself to the bus, I hop on the taxi, I provide my QR right. or my NFC, and all of this ideally in a way that after having been identified once, then the whole rest, it, it should behave yeah. like roaming, the whole rest is happen automatically through verification of credentials on a B2B level, and based on that then, introducing now the synonym of blockchain, distributed ledger, which means distributed bookkeeping, which means distributed revenue distribution. You then use that to make everybody whole in real time and fully consolidated in a way that no accountant in the world can realistically dream about now because the sum of all records across the whole ecosystem are net sum equals zero in real time at any point in time. Now, that is something that was simply impossible before the age of decentralized ledgers or distributed ledgers and the necessary verification of identities because any accountant in the world will tell you, you want to book a record, show me the identity of the counterparty. That is also, there's another break in paradigm here. Because on the pure blockchain public world, trust the transaction, not the person. So I don't really care who you are on Ethereum public. I don't really care who you are on Bitcoin because the transaction itself through this very, very strong consensus protocol vouches for itself. That does work. It's true. But it doesn't work for accounting. And at the very latest, when the tax man comes, it really doesn't work. Because when you tell the tax man, well, who is the counterparty? Oh, zero six seven eight bum 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 bum. Ah, and you took money from that zero six, huh? Ah, okay. I think you better come with us. We have a nice car downstairs. Sit in the back, please. You get my point, right? Absolutely, right. And um, in our conversations uh, privately, you had mentioned that identity is a yes. means and not an end. Uh, could you perhaps double yes. click on the statement in the context of the mobility blockchain yes. platform? So. Did decentralized identity play a crucial role in building this platform? Very much. They build a cru- they, it's a crucial role. You couldn't do it without it. It provides just the right layer of abstraction. It makes all business facts, all right. credentials, all tickets, all value perfectly portable across one blockchain to the other. But it is not a business model. Nobody is going to make money on decentralized identity. Nobody is making money on identity documents. And if you look at, and I've been around, I've seen a lot of hypes, and I know the dynamics of hype. There's an incredible hype now in DID, and everybody wants to be in it. From the politics to the big corporates to the big da-da-dum, da-da-dum. It's important, but I really counsel everybody who's going to put money into it. This is highly crucial. But it will be a mass market commodity business exactly because of its scope. So this is not something that is a business model in itself. What identity? What's the business model and identity? Am I going to sell myself? Sounds like slavery, right? Obviously not going to work. So there is nobody's going to make money directly out of identity. You make money because you have a smart business model for which you need to be sure that your counterparties are verified. And the money you make is the money of your business model. The money is not the money that you make from your identity. Just like you don't make you don't make money because you happen to have a notary that needs to get you the contract signature. 
The notary makes some form of money, but it's very well controlled amounts. It's government regulated, and it does, definitely does not warrant the incredible amount of attention this seems to be getting, which has gone overboard. I appreciate it because we right. built everything based on that standard, but I counsel the, those corporations that now throw the rest of their remaining innovation budgets almost exclusively on digital identity. I counsel them, think through what your business is. Ask yourself, is my business identity? Mm -hmm. And if your business is not identity, then ask yourself, what am I doing here? Right. Uh, and when it comes to platforms, one has to almost always address the chicken and egg problem, as you might yes. know, uh, particularly in network effects. Um, should the focus be more on getting partners into the ecosystem or should organizations go more towards acquiring users at the start? What's your take on this? Well, historically, which means over the last, let's make it 10 years since Mark Andreessen mm -hmm. announced and brought us into the platform era, so since then, all platform economies, all platform games have exclusively been on the aggregation of user side. So that is what we have seen historically, and it worked beautifully. But if you look at it now, and this becomes almost a social or political question, if you look at the effects of it, the result of this is purely from the administrative point of view, in order for somebody like one of the possible big platform operators that we all know, to do his business in a so-called neutral manner, they basically have to tell to their suppliers that are offering their services on this platform, which is only the middleman, oh yes, but in order to do this smoothly, we actually need to take over the customer relationship. So this is my customer now. Oh, and uh, we also have to do the billing because otherwise it's not going to work fully automatically. Boom, billing relationship is mine as well. Oh, and the customer doesn't even know you anymore. But that doesn't matter because every now and then we will be nice enough to send the customer your way so you will still get some revenue. Oh, uh, uh, but don't forget, right? We get 25% of revenue, right? Because otherwise, I'm sorry, but our terms and agreements are just like that. Which means that this has now gone to a level where it's becoming, concert it's becoming difficult to swallow, especially if you think about industrial areas like Europe, and especially if you think about the industrial service industries that we have here. Because if any German, French, European company would fall into a situation where we would have to give 25% of revenue to whoever operates the platform, well, either we are bankrupt or our social system breaks because we would have to take, we would have to work at much more brutal and cost efficient labor conditions. That's, there's no way out of this, which means if you now want to create platforms, but on the other hand, you want this to be acceptable from a policy, political and social way of doing, and you want to keep the money and the value add with those who actually deliver it, then you should probably think about platform economics where the aggregation happens on the supplier side. So let suppliers right. get together because one thing is so beautiful about platforms. You just need critical mass. And critical mass is always relative, which means if you have in a big market, if you get 200 million users in Europe, you've won. If you have acquired 40 million users, you're a very strong contender already to be, to be winning. Now, if you look at any industry in the mobility industry, you have less than 500 operators at this point in time who are majorly relevant. So with these 500, you covered 80% of the supply side. Well, 500, if you are somebody that has 
industrial networks that has been behaving sustainable and fair to his partners and his suppliers and even new competitors, acquiring critical mass out of a number of 500 is something that is very, very, very doable, especially because there's two things here. None of the operators in this ecosystem is going to agree to a platform that is operated by another one of those operators. Right. But all of them do not want that this whole platform game ends up with them losing the customer relationship. Because let's not forget this. The customer relationship is where the money flows into the ecosystem. It's the source of the money. It's the source of the wealth. It's the source of survival for the companies. The moment you give this out of your hand, you lose. Very simple. It might be tomorrow or the day after, but you lose. And people have understood this. Companies have understood this. The European antitrust organizations have understood this. Politicians have understood this. People have understood this. So the whole social fabric has understood this. And you can, if you talk to people about what these big platforms that suck your data out on the user side and basically mm -hmm. suck your value add away from the uh, supplier side and aggregate all of that incredible wealth to the tune of billions into the hands of very, very, very few people and one company, that is not sustainable. It is not fair mm -hmm. and is not an equilibrium. So the approach here is think of the very approved model of what used to be called the cooperatives, where companies get mm -hmm. together, farmers get together, saving and loans organizations get together, where they share resources, they share infrastructure, they compete against each other, but jointly they build things that they jointly need in order to operate and scale their markets bigger because all of them wants a big market. None of them individually has a market big enough. And in order to address mm -hmm. and build and serve the market, they need shared infrastructure, shared buying power, yeah. whatever it may be. And this approach of thinking the cooperative way of platform building by building a neutral platform which is governed by the major operators that use that platform in order to deliver their business is a much more sustainable form of doing business. And I truly believe in that from the financial aspect, from the business aspect, from the social aspect, and actually from the personal aspect. Right. Um, it appears that cooperation is a, a strong underlying theme of the mobility Indeed. blockchain platform. Um, I have a thesis about cooperation as a strategy to increase the adoption of novel products and just wanted to run it by you to see what you think. Um, I used to kind of believe in this adage of too many mm. cooks spoil the broth, particularly when it comes to bringing new technologies to market. And then I did a bunch of research about this for my thesis and came to the conclusion that cooperation as a strategy is a great way to bring new technologies um, to market, particularly emerging technologies where the know-how is quite limited um, at early stages. The key element here is the reputation of the partners, though. So I came to the conclusion that the more reputed the party is in the ecosystem, or the parties are in the ecosystem, the more likely a customer is to adopt a product or a service, primarily due to this sure. cognitive bias of sorts. Uh, what do you think it's about very, that? It's very true. And actually, you've mentioned two or three very pertinent points. So yes, unfortunately, and that's the weakness or the challenge. I wouldn't call it the weakness. But the challenge of operating mm -hmm. a platform in the collaborative way, cooperation. yes, too many cooks spoil the broth, too many discussions and opinions and 
political infighting will stop you from getting anything done while a Silicon Valley powered speedboat just rush, rushes by you mm-hmm. while you are discussing whether this That's is interoperable or not or not, whether you need even more interoperability. Is it also fair and equilibrious and has have has every single possible social concern been addressed before you even start coding? So that is a very real and I speak from experience. That's a very real issue. Mm-hmm. So this needs to be addressed, and this is case by case. There is no magic wand to it. Now, with regards to the brand right. recognition and that ultimately customers flock to where they feel safe because still in, in the human mind, trust is not necessarily on the blockchain. Trust is in the name, in the brand, in the person. So this is how we are wired and this is how we should be wired mm-hmm. and it's a good thing. So yes, indeed, of course, Trust is ultimately one of the two factors that brings customers. The other one, of course, is one stop gets me everything, which also is a very strong element. So that is very important. But one thing, and that is a mistake brands used to make in the past. I think most big corporates are waking up for this. Taking that thought and falling into the fallacy, the very self-congratulating fallacy. Ah, yes, but we are the very trusted brand of whatever it may be. be. And therefore, we have a chance to be that one trusted brand to which the customer goes, misses the point. Because there is not a single industrial right. brand out there that holds the market value, market, sorry, the market penetration, the market share that would qualify it in a platform game. So the biggest car manufacturer in Germany has about 15% market share. You are not a contender mm-hmm. in the platform game with that. So even if you fully penetrate your own market and you are exclusively, nobody else is operating in that market, you have 15% of the share. You become a contender once there's competitor. Once you have 20-30%, then you got two or three of these 20-30% battling it out. And then ultimately one is left standing. So you have to realize that you need the others on board as well. And then comes the, the the weak part or the challenge with brands. If you have a strong brand and you are that manufacturer and I also have a strong brand and I'm that manufacturer I'm not going to go on a platform that's branded with you even if it's under the hood whatnot if I know this has got your brand you're stable on it I am not putting my business on it and that's also I speak from experience so the only way you can address that is that trusted brands agree to collaborate through an external fully neutral entity that is not in any way controlled right. or labeled or in this case contaminated by their brand because the moment it gets this brand connotation, it gets that brand and it loses all others. And this is something right. that especially traditionally companies who are very proud of their heritage mm-hmm. and who are very proud and rightfully so of the incredible trust that their customers has, who are very proud of what they historically have done. And we in Germany have many, many, many of those. They also need to understand, yes, you have done incredible things in the past and your brand value is what you live by. That is all nice and well, but do not take that as an excuse to believe you should operate the platform yourself because that will fail no matter what your brand is. Right. Um, So if my supervisor is listening to this, you heard it straight from the practitioner's mouth. Wow, this actually is quite the moment of redemption for me. Um, a follow-up question from my supervisor would be, is it possible to deliver frictionless, price-effective services 
with many parties and a new technology involved? Well, again, I come back to the software. Software is human thoughts put into action and almost frictionless. Mm -hmm. So this is the main right. thing that software brought to the world. It blew away friction. So if you think straight and if you think clear, and if your architects are doing their job right, you can take almost anything that a human can possibly imagine, as long as it's done in a, in a thought that can be reproduced. So, you know, a burst of vision that you cannot even repeat yourself doesn't qualify. But a thought that you can explain in a reproducible manner can be put into software. There is nothing that you can formulate that a good software engineer cannot code. And a very good software right. engineer will make it frictionless. So you have the initial outlays of the software. But again, here, open source software has become so powerful, there is no corporate software out there that can compete with the competing products in open source. Guys here, they save some license cost. Save some license cost. Listen mm -hmm. to me. Don't pay license for crucial software. Go open source. Because the open source software is constantly peer reviewed. It is, right. it is constantly being increased in value. It is constantly, it, they have continuous updates. So building software, if you know what you're doing, has become a very cost-effective thing to do. And running software, 21st century running software, is essentially infinitely scalable because it is so much faster than you can think that for all practical purposes, it's infinitely fast. You just need to do right. it right. And that is, again, the part about making it right is you need to avoid the friction in the software. And the friction in the software is always when you have media breaks or possible errors. And that takes us straight back to identities. If everything can be identified and everything can be verified and every, all of these verifications can be done securely, cryptographically secure, in cryptography we trust secure, then you have actually the chance to really build seamless systems that do what human thought tells them to do. You could think of this difference between software and poetry is not very big because each one takes a human mm -hmm. thought and puts it into something. The one makes, it creates words that instill emotions in you. The other one does more. He takes thoughts and makes things work according to that thought. And this is what software does. It's a very powerful tool. Um, now that we've focused on the what and why, I think it's time to bring the attention to the how. So currently there is a deep misunderstanding of sorts among executives of what blockchain or decentralized identity offers to their business environment. How can corporates perhaps find that killer use case for decentralized identity? Well, here I would say don't make the mistake which in German we call to put the car before the horse. Don't right. ask executives to find a killer use case for digital identity. Their business is not digital identity. Find a killer use case, analyze it, and you will find a lot of places. Know your supplier, know your customer, know your device. The data transactions are insecure. I have master data problems. You will find a lot of problems that identity can solve for you. But it's don't do like a lot of also blockchain evangelists do that. They try and say, basically, right. blockchain, tell me your problem. Ah, I can solve it with blockchain. Okay, you tell me your problem. Mm -hmm. I can solve it with blockchain. That cannot possibly be true. 
And also, let's not go into businesses and say, let's find a use case for blockchain. Why would you want to do that? Just to keep your blockchain guy happy? Or what's the purpose of going and find mm-hmm. a use case that can be solved with digital identities? What's your interest in this? I mean, yes, if your interest is to keep your digital identity guy happy and well-paid, sure, be my guest. But then be aware that that's your, your business has just become to employ your digital identity people. So digital identity is powerful, but most companies, except for companies that are in the ID, ID business, in the know your customer business, possibly in the financial and regulatory business, most companies do not have business cases that rely on digital identity per se and definitely do not find business cases which they can solve with digital identity. It's the other way around. That's the point I was trying to make earlier. You have many business cases. For instance, um, vendor management. In the vendor management, the qualifications of vendors, which vendor is allowed to deliver me which good? Who's allowed to handle explosives? Who's allowed to deliver this? Who's environmentally certified? Who has been certified not to, uh, for, to, not to employ child labor outside? So all of this is becoming right. more and more relevant, but that's a business or a regulatory demand and requirement. And if you think about, okay, now how do I solve this? You will find if you use it with traditional ways, it's very expensive, very difficult to do. And then, however, if your IT people are smart, they will then say, not everything, but this one here, it is actually a good application of decentralized technologies. So first, for any decentralized transactions, you need decentralized verification. That's where you're pretty much Mm -hmm. in the area of digital identities and credentials. And then if you actually want to book this thing, and basically make sure that afterwards you can bill it automatically, then probably a good guess is look at something like a distributed ledger or similar, because that also provides that kind of functionality in a very secure and trustable manner, but also with the seamlessness and ease of use like decentralization does. But always approach it pragmatically. Don't, it's not the art for the art's sake. It's not the software for the software's sake, and it's not decentralized for decentralized sake. If it fits mm-hmm. the purpose, use it. If it doesn't fit the purpose, use something else. Right. And what's the playbook to bring decentralized technologies to market? Should corporates go at it on their own, or should they no. partner or be part of a consortia? What's the, what's the game plan here? The more, whether it's consortium or collaborations or cooperatives or alliances, mm-hmm. it depends a little bit on the exact framework. But as much as possible, agree that most of what you do is not differentiating you from your business. 80% of what you do in your transaction processing is done in exactly an equivalent manner by your competitors. There is no differentiation. And those, if I would go radical, do it open source, guys. Fund and sponsor open source. Bring open source developers into your companies. Provide market to open source applications to open source, that would be the fastest way to do it. That's a little bit too radical to be practical, but use at least consortium. Go into, and then you come into these consortia. If you're interested in identity, go into the ID union, go into LISI, go into whichever one you like. If you're very interested in mobility, I don't know, go into Mobi, go whatnot. But these are only good for development. So they're good to see what's the standard. They don't solve the operational problem. For the op- to actually operate operationally in production mode with others, it becomes a governance issue. There's a whole chapter 
in business development for people like us, the last chapter actually, before you fully go live, is governance. How right. do you set up the governance for a cooperatively structured, decentralized, collaborative effort where many come together to operate business and where, let's just say, because it makes it easier, each one of them is a competitor of the other. Or they're mm -hmm. not friendly to each other. Yep. So, But you still need to make it work. Then come, right. in come the market mechanism designers, the incentive designers. It's it becomes behavioral scientist meets game theory meets incentive design meets a couple of lawyer who get lawyers who get very very rich here. But it becomes a governance design issue to solve it when once you go into production. Um, so in short, blockchain is a we technology and not a me technology, correct? It is very much a we and us technology. And it does not make sense in a me environment. Nobody has a useful right. use case to use blockchain mm -hmm. for me. Right. Okay. And adding to that, uh, there is no real clarity when it comes to success metrics to determine the outcome of such a project. So is there a KPI that organizations should measure uh, while bringing decentralized initiatives to market? Yes. Keep the best people. Okay. Simple. Keep, simple. Keep the best uh, people. Right. It's, so it's not it, it is yeah. not mature enough that you can run, mm -hmm. put it into the KP, KPI machinery. You will need to rely on people that understand it for the time being, but that is by far your fastest and most pro, uh, most effective way to approach it. In this podcast, we do things differently. Um, Frontier Talk is an attempt to explore the intersection of identity, technology, and people. So the people element becomes an important ingredient in this podcast. Our next segment is called Frontier Fire, where I pose a series of rapid-fire questions to our guests on the show. So, Harry, you'll get roughly around 30 seconds to, say, elaborate on each answer that you give, but we want quick answers. So, are you ready? Ready. Ready as ready can be. Perfect. Let's get started. What's the one important truth that you believe in that very few people around you agree with? Most risks are worth taking. Right. And what's your mantra in life? Stay happy, stay humble. You have seen the AI and blockchain worlds uh, very closely for some time now. Do you see a potential marriage between the two technologies on the cards? And if so, when can we receive the... I would expect this. Yes, there's a very clear way of how they would meet. This will take another few years. And the basic, the meeting point is blockchain provides you golden data. Absolutely beautiful transaction, right. pristinely clean and trustworthy. Now, if you do AI based on this kind of data, compare it with going to some murky data lake where there's a lot of rubbish and what mm -hmm. mud in there and you're still doing your AI learning on that versus you go to this pristine source of drop by drop truth coming out of your data lake. So this is where the two will meet. Okay. And um, a person who inspires you and why? Well, I used to be doubtful, but simply because mm -hmm. he's beyond all we can measure. I think Elon Musk is the most hilarious semi-god I have ever seen. Right. I genuinely find it difficult to understand how people could actually criticize a person who is going out there to change the world in ways... You should not no measure him as a human. He is different. He should be measured like an Olympian god, which is what he's doing. I do not feel myself inferior to him, but I watch right. this being 
and I am in awe and admiration, and I love the guy because he's got a wicked sense of humor. Finally, uh, what's your advice to anyone listening to this podcast? Take it with a grain of salt. I'm obviously very enthusiastic about it. Don't believe everything I say. I'm probably too happy about being in this field. So take two-thirds of it and those with a grain of salt. Harry, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. You inspire me and I'm so glad I got you to be my first guest on this inaugural episode of Frontier Talk. I appreciate it. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Harry Behrens. Harry will be delivering a keynote at the European Identity and Cloud Conference, EIC, and a link to the event can be found in the description box below. So that concludes this inaugural episode of Frontier Talk. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and if you did, show us some love by, by liking, commenting, and sharing this video with anyone who might find this information useful. I hope you join me next time on this journey to redefine the I in identity. Thank you.